Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Now, before I begin, I want to apologize if I mispronounce anything in this episode. I looked everywhere for how to pronounce Ipervik and Takalituk, and I couldn't find it, and I didn't want to use the anglicized versions of their names, so I did my best to determine how to pronounce both names using a guide for how to pronounce various syllables. But I hope I got it right, and if I didn't, I do apologize. So, let's begin. For six months, a group of expedition survivors had drifted on Arctic ice flows. The long, cold polar nights had begun to take their toll. They were weak, hungry, and close to despair. They had not seen another living soul in the months since their ship disappeared over the horizon off the coast of Ellesmere Island in Canada's far north. They were left stranded. The food they had taken from the ship was long gone, having been consumed in a gluttonous display in the first month. The boats that sat on the ice floe initially had been used to burn small fires to cook food and stay warm. Now, after thousands of kilometers, they were nearing the coast of Newfoundland, and the hope of rescue increased. But with it came the growing danger of warm waters. With each passing day, as the sun hovered higher in the sky, the ice floe they were on became smaller. Yet, there was hope. Their journey was one that should have ended with their starvation long before this point, but it didn't. For on that ice floe was an Inuit man and woman who kept the survivors alive, fed and sheltered them from the elements for months as they waited for rescue. The Inuit couple were an amazing duo and already famous in North America for being veterans of Arctic expeditions. And you may think that this legendary tale of survival is the entire story of Ipervik and Takaletuk, but I promise you, it is only a small part of the amazing story that I'm going to share with you today. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Take a gander at the Arctic on Google Maps. You will see dozens of islands, ranging in size from a mere blip to massive. These islands stretch far to the north, and for us in the 21st century, there is little left to discover. But that wasn't always the case. Just a few centuries ago, the Arctic was a place of cold, mystery, and death, at least for European explorers who wondered what the region had to offer. For the Inuit, it was simply home. Europeans trekked the vast region in the hopes of finding fame and fortune, but also wanted to find something else, a passage, and they were venturing into the unknown. 
a place of long days in the summer and long cold nights in the winter, where snow and ice rain and death comes for the unprepared. Throughout the 16th century and early 17th century, explorers such as Martin Frobisher, John Davis, and Henry Hudson searched for the legendary Northwest Passage and a way through the Arctic. The Northwest Passage, a shortcut running through the Canadian Arctic, had been long sought by European explorers. At the time, the only route to the Pacific Ocean was an immense trip around the southern tip of South America. In the centuries before the Panama Canal, a passage over North America would save months of travel for explorers and merchants, and less time also meant more profits. And as with most things, money drove these explorers to put their lives on the line in a region they were barely suited for. The search for the passage began in 1553 with Martin Frobisher, who reached as far north as Baffin Island on his first voyage. He returned in 1577, spending weeks collecting ore that he believed to be gold-bearing. And on his return to England, he didn't just bring back ore. He brought back kidnapped Inuit, a man, woman, and child, all of whom died soon after reaching Europe. Frobisher returned once more in 1587 when he attempted to establish a settlement, which did not last long. As for the 1,350 tons of ore he collected on his voyages, it proved to be worthless and was used to build roads in England. Frobisher never ventured farther than the east coast of Baffin Island in his attempts to find the passage. And if you've seen a map, needless to say, there was still a long way to go. Various expeditions were conducted over the next half century until Jens Munk of Denmark came with two ships to find the passage in 1619. He became the second European after Thomas Button to explore the western parts of Hudson Bay. But he didn't find the Northwest Passage. Instead, all he found was cold, famine, and scurvy. Of the 65 men who arrived in the Arctic with him, only Monk and two others survived by the time they returned home in 1620. Then, almost as soon as the exploration started, it stopped. For the next 200 years, only a handful of expeditions were conducted in the Arctic, and none ventured much farther than the mouth of Hudson Bay. As the 19th century dawned, a slew of expeditions returned with stronger, more modern ships. John Ross, William Perry, and James Ross all ventured into the Arctic to find the passage in the first decades of the century. John Ross took three expeditions to the Arctic in 1818, 1829, and 1850, and was the first European to reach the North Magnetic Pole. Perry was the most successful of the explorers before the 20th century, reaching halfway across the Arctic. He took part in expeditions in 1818, 1819, 1821, and 1824. Then in 1827, he reached further north than any European before him, setting a record that would last for 49 years. As for James Ross, he took part in four expeditions between 1819 and 1827. In 1831, he personally planted the British flag at the Magnetic Pole. But the most famous of these expeditions was the Franklin Expedition of 1845, which ventured into the Arctic waters with two ships and 129 officers and crew. And despite careful planning, steam-powered ships with an internal heat system, three years' supply of food and 1,000 books and two libraries, the expedition ended in failure and became a legend. None of the men on the ships would ever be seen by European eyes again, and both ships would remain lost for almost 200 years. I'll be talking about this amazing story next year. The Arctic was 
unforgiving for European explorers, especially those who saw the Inuit as savages and refused to follow their advice. Hundreds of European explorers and sailors died exploring the Arctic. They faced conditions they could not have imagined, and many questioned how humans could survive in such a hostile environment. But humans made the North their home long before the Great Pyramid of Giza and Stonehenge were constructed. Humans were not only living in the Arctic, but thriving. In the Arctic, various cultures had emerged over the centuries, including the Dorset, the Saddlemute, and eventually the Inuit. And it is two Inuit in particular who are at the center of today's story. Amid all the exploration that was going on in the early 19th century, two Inuit were born, Ypervik and Takalatuk. Ypervik was born around 1837 in Cumberland Sound, an Arctic waterway located in the western arm of the Labrador Sea between Baffin Island's Hall Peninsula and the Cumberland Peninsula. Of course, it was not known as Cumberland Sound to the Inuit who lived there. For them, it was Tenudiak Beak. A year after Ypervik was born, his future wife, Takulituk, entered the world. Their home had mostly been ignored by European explorers, John Davis, an English explorer, first arrived in Cumberland Sound in 1585. He soon left after only reaching partway into the Sound. For the next 254 years, the Inuit of Cumberland Sound lived their lives without European interference or exploration. Then, in 1839, whaler and explorer William Penny arrived in Cumberland Sound on his ship, the Neptune. He soon met Inuluapik, Takalutuk's brother who agreed to show him the inland sea, which he said was full of whales. This was quite true, as both the beluga and bowhead whale lived in the sound year-round. And that was all the whaler needed to hear, and soon after his voyage there, the British set up a whaling station. The presence of whalers in Cumberland Sound had a huge impact on Ypervik and Takalituk. Takalituk learned English from the whalers, a skill that would serve her well in the coming years. And before long, the whalers began to rely on Ypervik for his hunting and guide skills. But instead of using his name, they simply called him Joe. Ypervik and Takalituk married as teenagers, and would have continued without much incident had it not been for the arrival of Thomas Bowlby. Bowlby was a whaler, and in 1852 he took Ypervik and Takalituk to England. Now it's not recorded whether or not they ever agreed to go or not. What is known is that it was not a sightseeing trip for the Inuit couple, but an effort by Bowlby to make money. During their stay in England, Ypervik and Takalituk were exhibited by Bowlby at several venues as curiosities from the Arctic. During these exhibitions, Bowlby always made sure to tell the crowd that the couple were married and had converted to Christianity. They caused a sensation in England and gained the notice of the most popular couple in the British Empire, Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert. Both Ypervik and Takalituk met with the couple, and by all accounts made a good impression with the Queen of England. They even dined with the royal couple at least once. And while Bowlby treated the Inuit couple as a curiosity to be exhibited, he did at least return them to the Arctic safely, something that unfortunately was not always the case with less scrupulous men. And the trip to England would have a major impact on Takalituk, she kept several European customs, wore Victorian dresses and bonnets on special occasions. In her seal-skin tent in the Arctic, 
she would provide tea and ask the guests how strong they liked it. And despite the close relationship the couple had with whalers, Takalituk was not a fan of their manners in Cumberland Sound, especially after her time in England. She would write in a letter, I feel sorry to say that many of the whaling people are very bad, making the Inuit bad too. They swear very much and make our people swear. I wish they would not do so. I wish no one would swear. It is very bad practice, I believe. The couple once again settled into their lives in Cumberland Sound. That is, until another European entered their lives and changed them forever. Charles Francis Hall was an American Arctic explorer who was collecting Inuit testimony regarding the Lost Franklin expedition. His first expedition to the Arctic was in 1860, and that's when he met Ipervik and Takalituk. He wrote in his journal how surprised he was to be greeted by Takalituk in her Victorian dress while speaking English fluently. He stated, A lady of refinement was there addressing me. With Hall, the couple traced Inuit oral traditions of Martin Frobisher's expedition in the 16th century. Ukijok's Ninu, Takalituk's grandmother, relayed the story to Hall of ships that had come a long time ago before any of them were born. She provided details that Hall was able to cross-reference with books to confirm that she was telling the story of Frobisher's arrival to the area. And Takalituk served as Hall's interpreter, while Ipervik served as guide and hunter. It was a common pattern for the couple on various expeditions. And thanks to them, Hall's expedition was able to locate the original site of Frobisher's attempted settlement and find several artifacts. And while the three had a good relationship, Hall was known for bursts of anger towards the couple when he felt they were not listening to his demands. One such fit of rage occurred when Ipervik refused to take Hall to King William Island, a thousand kilometers away from Cumberland Sound, stating there was a hostile Inuit group located there. Hall was forced to turn around, but for years he would mock Ipervik for being afraid to venture to the island. And despite the rocky points in their relationship, Hall was smart enough to know he could not succeed in his expeditions without the couple. And while Ipervik ensured Hall and his men were fed, Takalituk was essential for the survival tactics in the Arctic. She told Hall to shave his beard so that it wouldn't become encrusted with ice during a storm, and she also prevented Hall from eating rotten strips of whale meat that had been saved for sled dogs. Eating the meat would have made Hall violently ill. Hall was always impressed with Takalituk, and he wrote in his diary, I could not help admiring the exceeding gracefulness and modesty of her demeanor, Simple and gentle in her way, there was a degree of calm intellectual power about her that more and more astonished me. In 1862, Hall returned to the United States and brought with him Ipervik and Takalituk, along with their son, Takalektu. Like Bowlby before, he saw the couple as a means to make money and fund future expeditions. Hall gave talks with the Inuit couple standing next to him on stage while showing discovered relics of the Frobisher expedition. Ibervik and Takalituk always wore their traditional Inuit garments during these lectures, and the success of Hall's lecture tour attracted the attention of P.T. Barnum. Barnum was the American showman and businessman who purchased a museum and renamed it Barnum's American Museum. In the museum, he showed hoaxes and human curiosities such as the Fiji mermaid and General Tom Thumb. 
Offering Hall funds to help finance another expedition, Barnum was able to display Ibervik and Takalituk as human curiosities within his museum. Barnum advertised the couple as the first and only inhabitants of the Arctic ever brought to the United States. By all accounts, their brief time with Barnum was horrible. At least four evenings a week, they were forced to wear their fur clothes in the sweltering hot showrooms of Barnum's museum. Hall became aware of the conditions, and when Barnum asked to have the couple again at the museum and offered a great deal of money for the opportunity, Hall refused him. In 1863, Hall embarked on his next lecture tour of the East Coast and once again brought with him Ypervik and Takalituk. Sadly, the rigors of the tour took their toll on the family. Within a few weeks of the tour, the couple's son died, but the cause is not recorded. Leaving the tour to deal with their grief, the couple stayed at the home of whaling captain Sidney Bunnington in Connecticut. It was there they found peace and quiet so they could enjoy time away from the lectures and from Hall. Meanwhile, for Hall, the concern over the couple's son's death was more to do with how it impacted Takalituk and his next Arctic expedition, which was fast approaching. Despite the sometimes strained relationship, the couple agreed to join Hall in the Arctic when he ventured on his second expedition from 1864 to 1869. During those five years, the couple had another son named King William, who died in infancy. This is when Welcome Sound, Repulse Bay, and King William Island were visited, but Hall accomplished little else. Once again, both Ypervik and Takalituk were essential to Hall's survival, providing him with food, advice, and guidance on where to travel. And upon the end of the expedition, the couple decided they wanted to live in Connecticut. They bought property and adopted a two-year-old Inuit girl that they named Panik, which means daughter. But their association with Hall was not over. In 1871, Hall reunited with the couple during the Polaris expedition to the North Pole. This time, the journey was a complete disaster due to poor leadership and insubordination as the ship became encased in ice during the frigid winter. Hall became ill after a sledding journey on the ice floe, and he would never recover. He died on November 8, 1871. Prior to his death, he accused the members of the crew of poisoning him. Years later, Ypervik said that Hall was... Never be such a good man as Hall again, never so good to me. After his death, discipline broke down on the ship, but everyone was able to make it through the winter. And by June 1872, the ship finally reached open water and began to look for a southerly route. By this point, the ship had lost three lifeboats as they were crushed by ice over the previous year, and the expedition's goal was soon abandoned in favor of returning home. What no one could have known was that not only would the journey home take a lot longer than they expected, but it would also be without the Polaris itself. On October 15th, as the ship traveled south between Greenland and Ellesmere Island, it ran aground on a shallow iceberg and water began to pour into the ship. As the ship took on water, some of the crew chose to stay on the surrounding ice during the night and brought supplies with them. About 20 crew remained on board to deal with the leaks and rising water. When morning came, 10 crew members and all of the Inuit, including Ypervik and Takalituk and their daughter, found the ship gone. They were left stranded on an ice floe. 
The Polaris could be seen in the distance, 15 kilometers away, and attempts to get the attention of those on the ship failed. The ship and all those on board were never seen again. As for those left on the ice floe, there were 20 people in all, including Ipervik and Takalituk, their daughter, Inuit explorers Sursak and his wife Miku, with their three children, an American navigator George Tyson, and various other crew members from the ship. All the castaways had was 860 kilograms of food, two whaleboats, and two kayaks, one of which would soon be lost to the ice. The crew members did not conserve or ration their food. Instead, they went on an eating binge one night in November and consumed most of the food. They also broke up a whaleboat for firewood, further stranding them on the ice floe. For the next six months, Ipervik and Takalituk, with the other Inuit, kept the crew alive. Ibervik ensured the crew was fed and hunted seals. Years later, in 1875, he told the story of how he cautioned the men not to eat the liver of a large seal he had killed because it was poisonous. They didn't listen and became violently ill, making their struggle for survival even worse. The group drifted 2,900 kilometers before they finally were rescued off the coast of Newfoundland on April 30th, 1873. Now to put that into context, that's almost the same distance between Edmonton and Montreal. Even more amazingly, the number of survivors on that ice flow increased by one, as Han Hendrick's wife had a baby. He was an Inuit man who was born in Greenland, and his baby survived the ordeal. George Tyson, the ranking officer among the marooned party, wrote in his journal after they were rescued, We survived through God's mercy and Joe's ability as a hunter. Without Ipervik and Takalituk, those on the ice floe would have surely died. But when financial rewards and compensation were given to the survivors, the couple only received a fraction of what the others did. The New York Herald wrote about this, stating, It is not a little strange that after all this, when these men came home, that no attention was paid to what Ipervik had done, no notice was taken of him. While Tyson received $1,200, the couple received $300 combined. During the subsequent investigation into what happened, both Ipervik and Takalituk stated they believed Hall had been poisoned. Ipervik said in the inquest, Captain Hall, good man, very sorry, when he died. In 1968, an analysis of Hall's remains discovered that he had ingested a large amount of arsenic in the last two weeks of his life. After the rescue, the couple settled in Connecticut, but Ipervik returned to the Arctic to work as a guide on occasion. He took part in the expeditions of Captain Alan Young on the Pandora as it sought to find the Northwest Passage and determine the fate of the Franklin Expedition. In all, Young took two expeditions to the Arctic, and Ipervik joined him on both. Journalist J.A. McGahan, in his book on the expedition, said Ipervik had a quiet dignity and gravity about him. Takalituk never returned north and remained with her daughter at home in Connecticut and worked as a seamstress. The experience of spending six months on the ice floe took a toll on the family, though. The couple's adopted daughter would die on March 18, 1875 at the age of nine from pneumonia. With the loss of her daughter, Takalituk soon fell ill and died on December 31, 1876 of tuberculosis. Ipervik returned home from the second expedition with Young, to find his beloved wife had died. Overcome with grief, he remained only briefly in Connecticut. 
He eventually left to take part in the expedition of Franklin Schwatka, who was looking for clues to the fate of Franklin and his ship. Ipervik taught him how the Inuit survived in the Arctic, but by this point he was older and the expeditions were becoming more difficult for him. He left the expedition, but he did not return to Connecticut and he chose to stay in the north. He died in 1881. The circumstances around his death are not known, and although he wanted to be buried beside Takalituk, the location of his body is unknown. That's the end of the story for Ipervik and Takalituk, but there's something else you should know about them, and how Canada has honored them. While the story of Ipervik and Takalituk is not well known, many places around the Arctic have been named for them. Iberbing Bay is named for Ipervik using the European spelling of his name, while Tukalitu Inlet is the European spelling of Takalituk. Near the inlet you also find Butterfly Bay, that was the nickname Ipervik gave Takalituk during their life together. Lastly, Takalituk's grandmother has an island named for her that was later changed to Shepherd Island. And in 1981, both Ipervik and Takalituk were named Persons of National Historic Significance by Parks Canada, and their plaque is located nearby to where the couple lived in Cumberland Sound. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Smithsonian, Canadian Geographic, Wikipedia, Arctic Profiles, Northern Voices, Ninjit 2, Canadian Encyclopedia, Atlas Obscura, Erasure as a Tool of the 19th Century European Exploration. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.